Well, sooner or later, everyone suffers from loss. Whether it's losing a job or failing health or divorce, sexual assault, career disappointment or mental illness, it's all part of life and no one is exempt. And yet there are degrees of loss. Sometimes loss hurts in the moment, but ultimately things right themselves. We recover, the loss becomes a catalyst for something even better. But then there is a kind of loss that is categorically different. Loss so catastrophic that you know in the moment that life will never be the same and you will never get over it. It's difficult to rank loss on a scale of severity, and yet we recognize that losing a parent when you're a child is fundamentally different from being present when your mother is in her 90s and she's on her way out. We know that a cancer scare is different than a stage four diagnosis for a father in his 30s. Of course, you can't put a definite label on loss because all losses are bad, just bad in different ways, and each person responds in different ways to whatever it is they experience. And yet there are some losses that are so devastating and irreversible that any feeling person immediately grasps the depth of the pain. Eventually, every grieving person comes to the point of asking, why not, uh, why, what now? Where do I go from here? For some, the loss becomes the defining event of their lives. It colors their thinking from every moment from that point on and forward. That said, I firmly believe that there is hope for those who grieve. In the Christian tradition, there are resources that help us cope with even the most difficult of circumstances, even if there is nothing we can do to completely erase the pain that comes with tragic loss. But to say that there is hope is not to say that the pain is not real. Some give off the mistaken impression that it's okay to grieve for a little bit of time, but by all means, get over it quickly. That's not only mistaken, I think it's downright harmful. Even Jesus wept when a friend of his died. We'll talk about that story a little bit later. Why? Well, because his friend Lazarus was precious to him. And the same is true for us. The experience of grief is an emotion that we have no control over, at least little control over in the moment. There are times when you find yourselves engulfed in deep sadness. When you grasp for faith and when someone tells you that God is with you, you want to shout back, no, he isn't. I've had people who've told me that at times like that, it feels like the light has just disappeared from their lives. They say the doubts are so loud that it feels as though there's no hope. One person told me that the very last thing that she ever wanted to do, again, was open a Bible. Someone I follow on Twitter during a difficult time said that the Bible ought to have a trigger warning all over the cover. And then you go to church and they sing a song about God with the lyrics, you are good, good all the time, and you want to say feels like cruel and unusual punishment. Years ago, my father said something that I first found troubling, and he said that uh, unexpected and tragic loss is more difficult for a Christian than for those who don't believe. Now, he quickly said it's also less difficult at the same time, but I was hung up on the first point until he explained himself. Why is it that loss can be more difficult for those who believe? Because if we believe in a good God, one who is powerful and active in the world, it raises some questions, like why would God allow us to experience what we do, whether it's divorce or bankruptcy or, worst of all, untimely death of someone we love? And it's an important question. For years now, I've tried to read the best of thinkers and what they have to say about these questions, and we can't talk about all of that, but what I'll tell you is that I have, at best, a partial answer. For one, we know that we live in a world that is less than perfect. For example, nature has laws Those laws mean that sometimes tragedies occur with no one other than the laws of physics to blame. 
Nature, good in design, can also go awry. Cancer happens when cells go rogue and grow unchecked and attack the body. There are also times, though, when we know why something happens, although that tends to be sometimes the rarer of experiences because sometimes tragedy feels, at least, completely random. We also live, though, in a world where we're living with less than perfect people, which means that people make careless, sometimes even evil decisions that affect us, at times in profoundly heartbreaking ways. So back to the problem. How can we believe in a good God who cares, a God who is powerful and mighty, and yet still experience unexpected loss? It's a reality that challenges everything that we believe. For those who don't believe that God exists, who believe the natural world is all there is, there's no expectation of goodness. If there's no creator, if life is just the product of blind chance, then there can be no design or meaning or purpose to life. That means that it's more logically consistent if you don't believe in God to agree with the bumper sticker that says life sucks and then you die. But Christians believe life does have meaning and purpose. We believe God is present and active in the world. That's why unexpected loss can be more emotionally difficult for someone who believes. And yet it can also be less difficult. That's because in the Christian tradition is a story that helps us make sense of suffering and loss. And, as we, and through it we have the resources here and in the future to help us walk through those experiences. But that doesn't mean that loss is necessarily any easier, at least not in the moment. When you love someone deeply and then they are gone, you will be sad. And that sadness may last for a long time, perhaps in one form or another for the rest of your lives. But as we'll describe later, faith in God also offers us something we cannot find anywhere else. But before we talk about what we can learn in times of loss, let's deal with a couple of misconceptions that I think are important for us to deal with. And the first of those is something I hear almost every week. You even hear it with athletes talking about their careers. And that is this notion of everything happens for a reason. It may surprise you to know that the Bible doesn't say that. It does tell us that God can bring good out of difficulty, Romans chapter 8. He can even bring good out of tragedy, but it never says that everything that happens is good. The key problem with this idea is that it makes God the author of tragedy, and that's just not consistent with his character. Again, good can come out of tragedy, but it's not as if God has dialed up something awful just so we can grow. God can and will always have the last word, and in his infinite grace can bring good out of loss, but not everything happens for a reason. The second misconception has to do with this concept of stages of grief. This is not something that comes from the Bible, although pieces of it are consistent with that. It's an idea developed decades ago by people like Helen Kubler-Ross, and it seeks to describe a typical series of emotions that we experience when we lose a loved one. And the progression goes from denial to anger to bargaining to depression and then to acceptance. And it's been helpful for many because it does describe a process of recovery that follows a fairly predictable trajectory. And for many, this may be true, at least for certain kinds of loss. My parents are now in their early 80, or 90s, excuse me, and they won't be around much longer. And I will be sad when they are gone. They've been a terrific influence and terrific people in my life. And perhaps I'll go through one or more of these stages when they're gone. But I will not experience what some of you have experienced. But I once came close. When I was 13, my mother had a health crisis that lasted for several weeks. In fact, her life hung in the balance for about a month, and she nearly died. If she had, my life would be far different than what it was. To lose her at 91 or 92 or 93 is one sort of loss, 
But to have lost her when I was 13 would have been something quite different. With that kind of loss, and it's that kind of loss that we're talking about today. And in that kind of loss, there may be no stages of grief, or at least not something that conforms to the model. That kind of sadness and sorrow will always be with you because you lost something valuable and the timing was so unexpected. It's no wonder then that it can be difficult. There's nothing that can fully compensate for a loss like that. Now all that brings us to a crossroads, and that is if the feelings of loss are unlikely to go away, at least not completely, are we powerless? And the answer, I believe, is no. And that is that while we don't have control over what happens to us, we do have a choice in how we respond. Now, to be clear, complete recovery from catastrophic loss, I think, is unrealistic. It can even be a harmful expectation. If by recovery you mean resuming life as it was and feeling as you once felt, that will probably not happen. But what is possible is to live and even be enlarged by the loss, even as it continues to be a part of your life. But this will depend on the choices that we make, the grace that we receive, and the transformation that is possible by the power of God in our lives. But it won't be a painless process. Growth is possible. Growth, though, that you may not have otherwise thought possible. That's not to minimize the pain or to call it good. The good that may come may never replace the bad thing, and we don't want to call it good. Nothing can, but growth can take place. Now, I do realize that to say that you have choices may sound insensitive. You might say, how dare you? And you're right in some ways because you never choose the thing that happened to you. So you might ask, are you saying that recovery is just sucking it up and denying that whatever has happened is bad? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something much different, and that is to be able to take what comes in life, good and bad, and see it as an opportunity for personal and spiritual growth. Over the years, I've watched people go through the unthinkable, and I have seen them grow in profound ways. A friend of mine recently wrote a book about his cancer journey, actually two different kinds of cancer, and one nearly took his life. In the book, he acknowledges that um, his experience has a happy ending. But one of the things he says he found, and something that others have told him as well, is that just as there is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, there is also post-traumatic stress growth. And what he found is that as difficult as it was, he has grown, grown in ways that he never imagined, grown in ways that have made him a deeper, more sensitive and caring person. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters,' Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, let me be clear here. James is not saying that we're to be happy when something difficult comes, but we can find joy in the experience of growth that comes through these times of difficulty. There's nothing here about denial. Deep sorrow and grief are normal reactions to loss. It's not something that we will just get over, just like that. But loss can be a catalyst for growth, often making us stronger and deeper than we were before. Jerry Sitzter is a professor at a small school in the state of Washington. And more than 20 years ago, he was traveling down an open road in the countryside in a minivan with his wife, his mother-in-law, and his four children when a drunk driver plowed through an intersection, smashed into their minivan, killing his wife, his mother-in-law, and one of his four children. Three generations were gone in an instant. It was then that he was left with the remaining three children trying to pick up the pieces of his life. 
A few years later, Sitzer wrote a book about what he'd learned. It's a book called A Grace Disguised, a book, I, by the way, that I'd highly recommend. Sitzer uh, suggests that the experience of loss need not be the defining moment of our life, but that the response to it, our response to it, can be that defining moment. In other words, he says, it isn't what happens to us, but what we do with ha- what happens to us that matters most. Some, he says, are tempted to run away and hide, or even to try to deaden the pain. But what he suggests instead is that we lean into it, and that we try to learn and face up to whatever God might have and might be able to teach us through it. We can, he says, choose to grow. And when we do, we become different people. Life can be good again, not like it was before, but good nonetheless. And in this, God transforms us by his grace. While we can't change the situation, we can allow the situation to change us. So how exactly does that process of growth take place? Well, let me suggest there are three ways. And the first is don't bury your feelings. Now, I can imagine it's tempting to try to stuff your feelings, um, but it's not wise. Unlike what some Christians think, it's not very spiritual either. I mentioned earlier that Jesus once lost a close friend. His friend's name was Lazarus. And after he heard that Lazarus was gone, he went to their family home where he was greeted by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And John's biography of Jesus tells us that when he arrived, it says, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Do you see what Jesus did? He cried. And the reason he cried, everyone there understood, was because he had loved this man dearly. He cried after the death of a close friend. And so should we not feel free to cry after someone we dearly love is gone. And we may do more than cry. We may be angry. We may have doubts. And that anger and those doubts may be directed at God. It's unfortunate, but some have the mistaken impression that God doesn't like it when we talk back. That if we tell God honestly how we're feeling, he's liable to tell us to stuff it. But it's not true. The Bible does not tell us to simply grin and bear it, to stuff our feelings and act as if nothing's wrong when everything around us is crumbling. And if you want proof, all you need to do is look at the Bible, and it may surprise you. One of the core values here at City Church is the Bible. We want to teach the Bible because we believe that God inspired the writers of the Bible to write what they wrote. And we also believe that he inspired those who helped select what went into it and what's not. More than 2,500 years ago, the ancient Hebrew people sorted through the songs that they used in their worship services in the temple. And they kept the ones that they found most useful in a book in the Bible we call Psalms. It contains 150 different songs that were used in their worship experiences, including Psalm 88. And I want you to listen to a little part of what the poet says here about loss. And he starts this way. He says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. That's about the way you expect a psalm to begin. Then he says, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. He's just asking God, listen to my prayer. And then he says, beginning in verse 3, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. So he's saying, life is tough. And then it, wait, you can just see how it gets darker. He says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. It's pretty dark. You wonder, is this going to get better? Well, not really. Verse 8, I am confined and cannot escape. 
My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, I cry to you for help, Lord. Why do you reject me and hide your face from me? Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And that's the end. If you read the psalm, sometimes they flip and there's an affirmation of God's goodness. But this one doesn't end that way. I keep reading it every time I do and waiting for it to get better. Waiting for some positive message at the end, but it just ends with darkness. Darkness is my closest friend, he says. Psalm 88 doesn't have a silver lining. It's a cry for help without a response from God. And yet he does cry out, and I think that's significant. As badly as he's hurting, he's taking everything he's feeling straight to God. He doesn't apologize for being so blunt. Why? Because he believes that God can take it. He's honest about how he sees things. He's honest about his feelings, his lack of hope in the moment. And yet it doesn't appear that he has completely turned his back on God. It seems to me that there is more faith here than we might at first think. First, because he's bold enough to bring what he's feeling to God. His deep sadness, his pain, he still trusts in God despite the fact that he doesn't have the answers that he wants. He doesn't act as if everything's okay when it isn't. That would be dishonest, and yet he brings these things to God. What this tells us, I believe, is that God is not telling us to bury our feelings. Instead, we can tell God exactly how we feel and know that he will not bring down fire from on heaven and destroy us. There are times when you look around the world and it feels as if every trace of God has disappeared. And yet, you continue to obey, to be faithful to God, despite your feelings. I believe God is always pleased with faith, but I think he is especially pleased when we have faith in those kinds of circumstances. Now, to be fair to the book of Psalms, there are many more Psalms that begin the same way that this one does and then end with uh, an affirmation of God's ability to fix what's wrong. That's because the consistent message of the Bible is that the darkness will not last forever. Whatever you're feeling, though, we are to be honest with God about those things. The second important lesson about times of loss is never grieve alone. Instead, grieve with others. It's important not to let yourself become isolated. You need people around you who care for you, who are willing to hang with you when times are tough. The temptation, though, is to isolate, thinking that you are a burden to others. But seek out those close to you in times of difficulty. We need to have others to walk through us with the loss, which is one more reason, by the way, that I think being deeply connected in a church community is important in our lives. The more connected we are, the more people we will have when we really need them. The more invested you are in a community, the more people you'll have to walk with you through tough times. Now, let me just here pause for a moment and talk to those who have hurting friends. In other words, not the ones who are hurting in the moment, but those who have people in your lives who are hurting. And I know that it's sometimes uncomfortable to be with those who are grieving. It's not that you don't care, you just have no idea what to do. And so because of that, whether you intend to or not, you avoid that person. And I get it. Although it's not as hard as you might think, to help a grieving friend. The first thing to know is that the most important thing is to show up. Just being there may be all that your friend really needs. You don't even need to say anything. In fact, don't talk too much. Some things that you might say would better be off, uh, better left, be better left unsaid. Don't compare. Don't say you'll get over it. Don't try to make sense of it and certainly don't say it's for the best. But do say that you're sorry. 
Do say that you're sad too, although you don't understand exactly how they feel. And do serve them in practical ways. Bring a meal, do some shopping, shovel their snow. But most of all, just be there. Listen and listen some more because friends don't let friends grieve alone. Here's how St. Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Let me just say, by the way, that if you are struggling at loss and a time of grief, please let us know. There are resources here and other places that we can help to connect you with um, as you go through that difficult time. Well, the final way in which we can um, uh, choose to, to respond is to choose to hope. And I want to be clear here that you aren't suddenly to break out with the saccharine platitudes. That's not what I'm saying here. But you can choose to put your hope in God. Yes, life is not fair, but the Christian story isn't one that focuses solely on this life. We're told that God has been at work in the world. He created this world, he parted the Red Sea, he raised the dead, he turned water into wine, and many of us have experienced a time when we know that God intervened in our lives. The Christian story takes a major turn with Christmas, the story of how God became one of us. You see, because what Jesus did is enter into our world of suffering and pain. He experienced what we experienced, and he understands what it is to suffer as we have suffered. The Bible tells us that the pain we experienced here on earth, though, will not last forever. The Easter story tells us that Jesus died and rose again to restore the broken relationship that we have with God. It's through a relationship with him that we will experience complete healing. St. Paul, trying to put perspective on it for a group of Christians living in a place called Thessalonica, said this. He said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. We grieve not as those who have no hope. I firmly believe that in the end, the suffering we experience will be made up for, sometimes in part here on earth, but fully when we go to be with Jesus. In the meantime, God offers us comfort and peace. Comfort and peace that may not make the pain go away, at least not now. But one day, we're told in Revelation chapter 21, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We're told that the earliest Christians experienced significant hardship. At times, their lives were at risk. In fact, some we know did give their lives for their faith, and their courage in the face of danger is inspiring as, as well as humbling. I'm sure at times that they asked why. Why are these things happening? But it doesn't seem that they did as often as we do, which is ironic because their lives were more challenging than ours are. One thing we know is that they assumed that suffering was part of what it meant to be a Christian. They'd been taught that a day was coming when the suffering that we experience here on earth would end, that when Jesus returns, he'd usher in a new day, and that gave them hope. Hope gave their, their present suffering meaning. In this way, they were able to view their present reality in light of something greater, something new and glorious, and that was their future when they went to be with Jesus. If you live long enough, you will experience loss. When tragedy comes, cling to God. Remember that earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. The battle is not over, 
in the end, God wins. Yes, not everything that happens is good. Bad things, even horrific things happen. But in the end, God will bring good both now and in eternity. And here's the way St. Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Trying to put all of these experiences in perspective. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father, as hard as it may be to say, when we experience loss, we first of all affirm your goodness and greatness. We affirm it because we've experienced it. But here in this life, on this side of heaven, we also know the pain of loss all too well. We would ask that you would grant us a special measure of your love and care. Comfort us and bring us healing. May we lean into you and let you grow us as you will. And send us forth from this place as those who can also comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from you. We say all of this in the name of Jesus, the one who guarantees for us eternal life. We pray it in his name.